as you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. Peter has been speaking to a group of Christians who he calls exiles. They have been suffering persecution because they are believers in Jesus Christ in a hostile world, a world that is hostile to the gospel. And it is in the midst of their current difficult circumstances that Peter has been seeking to remind them of who they are and how they should continue to live and continue to grow and to thrive in the midst of everything that's going on until the return of Jesus Christ. And so, as a quick recap of what we've covered so far, in verses 1 of 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds them that they are elect and chosen by God. In verses 3 through 5, Peter reminds them what happened to them, that God had great mercy upon them in that he gave them the new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, they were delivered from sin and delivered from death and given eternal spiritual life through faith in Jesus Christ. They were born again. It's the born again experience. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be uh, a follower of Christ without being born again. It is a spiritual birth. Just as you were born naturally, you must be born spiritually. And it is through great mercy that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 to 7, Peter reminds them that even though they were facing trials, because how many of you know that when you become a Christian, when you were born again, all your trials just don't go away? They actually quite often intensify because now you have a target on your back as you seek to glorify God in your life, as the Lord would seek to change you from the inside out, and is, the enemy does not like that. And you've got your own enemy, the flesh, inside of you, but you have trials, and these people were facing severe trials. And Peter wanted to let them know that even though they were going through these trials, that their trials served a purpose. Amen. And the purpose was to refine their, their faith, and I always think of kind of like the, uh, you know, you ever watch Star Wars? I know it's a bad analogy, but you know, like the old, the old school Star Wars, the real Star Wars, when they had the Millennium Falcon is, is flying out of the Death Star as it's exploding and fire's going around all the other side. They're focused. They're not going to go take a right or a left. They're focused on getting out in the hope. And that, that aim that they're at is Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? For us. The fires are coming around, but it refines us. It lets us be focused on our hope, which is the return of Jesus Christ. And so Peter lets them know that, man, you have a sure hope in God's deliverance. And by the way, rewards when he appears. In verses 8 and 9, they're reminded that their faith has been, although their faith has been refined by fire, the proof that they're his is that they still love him and they still trust him. They came out even more trusting and even more loving because of the, the, the trials. And really, that's what trials do is they cut away the rough edges and they focus us on the hope of Christ. And, and He is our hope. And as His Word is in us, uh, love pours out. And so then in verses 10 through 12, Peter reminds them of how their great salvation came to them. It didn't just, wasn't just emailed to them. It came actually through prophets. Prophets had uh, prophesied as the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets looking forward to the sufferings of Christ. Again, that's a, that's a quite interesting thought, that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets prophesying that in a thousand years and 500 years or whatever it might be, that the, the Messiah would suffer in a certain way for sin and also the glories to come. That's how the, 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 the gospel message came, that there was a prophecy that we would actually be saved from our sin through a person, through the Messiah. He must suffer and die on behalf of the guilty. And then the apostles there, they witnessed the Messiah living, breathing, walking on the earth, saying all these things, performing the miracles just as all the prophets had said, and dying the death for sinners. Not only did they see him die and saw him on the cross, but guess what? They saw him rose again on the third day. They saw the empty grave. They saw Jesus. They touched him, they, and then he commissioned them. And so that was important that they knew that it wasn't just some myth. It was connected, and that here we are. Peter, one of those apostles, says, and that message we preach to you. 
So verses 6, 13 to 16, after they find out what they receive, then Peter switches gears and begins to share how this new life and should be evidenced in their lives through obedience and holiness. In other words, if you're born again, you're going to have cravings, you're going to have desires that are godly. If you're born again of the Spirit, your life is going to change. And that should be evidenced in two major ways, in obedience and holiness. In obedience and holiness. Something the church does not like to hear about. Again, I've said it before, how many of you want to hear, the Lord desires that we be obedient to His voice and that we be holy, we be set apart from the world and set apart to Him. In the world, not of it, is another way of saying it. And Peter illustrates this by using the imagery of a relationship of a father and, and his children. And as children who have been born again into his family, the evidence that we've been born again is that we now hear the voice of our father and we emulate him. How many of you have kids? How many of them act like you? How many of you are kind of happy, kind of sad about that? Our father doesn't have our issues. He is perfect, he is holy, he is set apart in his nature, and as we are born of his spirit, and we're now in his family, we now, we now have the ability to hear his voice, and not only to hear his voice, but now we follow in his footsteps, and we are holy as he is holy. So we're being set apart from the way we once were, a life marked by disobedience and unholiness. Now we are marked by obedience and holiness, and we know that our little churches, uh, our, our churches, uh, you know, uh, theme is, is, is we want to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. We glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ to His glory. Then in verses 17 to 21, Peter reminds them of the attitude we should have while we're here, that we should live our stay here in reverent fear as Christians. In reverent fear as Christians. Why? Verse 18 says that we were redeemed not with earthly perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless, blemishless Son of God. And then finally, Peter, in verses 23 to 25, he reminds us again of the nature of our new birth, the nature of our new birth, that we have turned from uh, our sin and we believe in Jesus Christ. We are now born again. We were purified when we believed. And that purification brought about a sincere love for one another, which our brother Mike shared with this this morning. In other words, it is an unnatural love. It is a supernatural godly love. God, that a, a love that is based on charity, not based upon how someone looks or the beauty or what they can give them or and all those types of things that the world calls love, that your television tells you is love, that all the music tells you is love. That's not the love we're talking about. We're talking about a holy, perfect, sinless God separated from all sin and yet he got in the middle of it, not because of what you could give to him, but because of what he wanted to bestow upon you. And if we've been born again by that grace and by that love of God, for God so loved the world that he sent his Holy Son, and now if we're a part, if we're his kids, how should that impact one another? That's heavy stuff. And how do we do that? As Mike said, by obeying the truth. Praise the Lord. And so we are to love one another deeply because, verse 23 says, we have been born not of perishable seed. You, we've all been, how many of you are dying Raise your hand if you're breathing. You're dying. Just want to let you know. Some faster than others. That's called perishable seed. That's the way of man. But we have been born of imperishable seed. Not by normal natural human birth, but imperishable seed. By the living and enduring word of God. By the living and enduring word of God. The gospel that is preached. The simplicity of We're all dying, we're all perishing, but God has eternal life, and so he says eternal life is through his son. We've all sinned, that's why we're dying, and now he casts the hope of eternal life to you, to me, that whoever believes upon the perfect spotless sacrifice on our behalf, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection, you shall have eternal life, the promise of God. By grace you have been saved. And when we believe, that seed comes into our hearts and starts to grow, and it does not stop. It wells up into eternal life. You out, your outward man is perishing, but your inward man is being renewed day by day, and it will never stop by the grace of God. And so Peter ends with this illustration, the end of chapter 1, where he says, All people are like grass. Thank you, Peter. 
And all their glory is like the flower of the field. That's verse 24. That the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures what? Forever. He's talking about the word that was implanted in the heart of a believer. Jesus Christ. The picture is that all people are born of that natural seed, and we are perishing. But for those who have been born again, through faith in Jesus Christ, we will endure forever, have everlasting life. And by the way, that life impacts us now. It impacts us now, and that's what Peter's getting at. If you have been born again, if you have tasted indeed and seen the Lord of good, it's going to impact how you live now. Through trials, through tribulations, your life, your character's going to change. Behavior modification is going to come from the outside of the end. It's going to come from the inside out. As we conform to his holiness and we obey his voice, we're going to change. And so that new life that is within us, that new birth, it compels us to obedience towards God. And this morning, the Lord is, is speaking to his church, and he is asking you and commanding you to obey him in certain areas. Do you know that? It is not the suggestion. He is now Lord. And he is a loving Lord and kind. But I know some of us, myself included, he is saying, obey me in this. And this love, this, this changed life will compel us to say, yes, Father, Abba, Father, even though it hurts. And we begin to obey and we pursue holiness and to love God and to love one another. It causes us to change from who we are to who God has called us to be in Christ, who we are now in Christ. And so Peter is now focusing on the effect of the new birth and life of the believer and the effect of our lives, what it means to be a Christian. What God has delivered and is delivering us from and what he has and is delivering us to. And so in chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 through 3, where we're picking up this morning, it says, Therefore, because of all this, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, verse 2, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In verse 1, Peter commands them to shed their old life. In verses 2 and 3, Peter commands them to put on their new life. Everybody got that? Wax on, wax off? Put off your old life, put on your new life. And if you keep reading, Peter continues the pattern of giving them a spiritual truth about Christ and their relationship to them. And then he says, now this is how you should respond to it. And he just keeps teetering back and forth. This is who you are in Christ, chapter 1. This is how you act and respond as a result of that. This is who you are in Christ. This is how we live now as a result of who you are and what he's done. And that's all he's doing, going back and forth. And so in the end of chapter 1, he does the same thing. You've been born again by an imperishable seed. You were dying and fading, but God saved you through Christ. So therefore, now that you're alive, rid yourself of that old life. Rid yourself of that old life, which is marked by malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And you're to put on or to crave, basically, like newborn babies, the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up by it. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And this is how you grow in Christ. This is how we grow in Christ. This is the key to spiritual growth. It's quite simple. God calls you to put off your old life, your old nature, and he calls you to put on Christ. And if you are stunted this morning in your walk with the Lord, if, if your Christian life of following Jesus is stagnant, if God is boring to you, if, if, if you're just stuck, I mean, we've all been there at times, all that kind of stuff, it is most likely because you have neglected to get rid of something the Lord has said get rid of, or, and, and, you have neglected probably to add something the Lord has told you to put on, because Quite often, Lord, whatever he tells us to put off, he wants to replace it with something else. You know, you read about that in other, other verses. Hey, those of you who used to steal, stop stealing. Put that off. Now I want you to go get a job. Why? So that you can be a giver. Whoa, what in the world's that? Well, some of us stop stealing, but we don't get a job and start giving. Do the opposite, right? You know what I'm saying? 
or some of us get a job and start stealing. So this is not, uh, so the Lord wants to change us, but we have to get rid, rid ourselves of things by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way, and we have to assimilate things into our hearts and life. I've watched this often in my own life over the years and in the lives of the people that God's called me to come alongside. When a person first comes to Christ, how many of you remember when you first came to Christ? I mean, He impacted your life amazingly. When you first come to Christ, the Holy Spirit, He prompts you to put off those old sinful attitudes one by one. He just keeps pointing out these areas in your life that don't match up with the reality of, of who you are now. You're born again, and you find you're wearing these old clothes, whether it's you just realize you had, you're just swearing all the time, and all of a sudden you realize, you know, I've got to put that off. That doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. It's not an outward in thing. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going, hey, uh, you notice how you're talking? And you're just going, yeah, that's the way I've always talked. And then it's like, well, what do you think about that? How do you think about you and me and that? And, and, and then all of a sudden this discussion happens in your heart, and you're going, you know what? That isn't, that's kind of hypocritical. I, yeah, I, that's not me anymore. Lord, help me with this. And then there's a conscious decision for a while to say, you know what? When I'm in traffic in San Diego and people cut you off every two seconds, no one lets you in, unlike Walla Walla. You guys are blessed. You don't react the way you used to react. There's, there's, a, there's a chastening in your own heart as you seek to obey the voice of God. And it replaces it with, not only do I want you to stop saying that, cursing, I want you to start praying for them. What in the world? Now, that, I'm, I'm probably somewhere in between right now, to let you know in my own refinement process. But you begin to shed them in, 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 when you first come to Christ and... In, 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 the new life starts to come in. You change. I remember people coming up to me and go, Matt, you know, your, your mouth is different. What went on? And I'm like, really? I'm like, oh yeah, the Lord. You know, it's, it just became so natural part of my life. But this is the picture I often have. Um, it's from a pastor's conference. Some of you went to it with me a couple years back. It's that of Lazarus rising from the dead. Lazarus rising from the dead. He rose from the dead. Jesus said, come forth to Lazarus. And what happened to that dead man? unable to move, unable to do anything by himself. He's stuck in a grave, and God called out and said, get up. And what happened? He got up, and he came out. But what did he came out, come out wearing? He got the grave clothes on. And that's kind of the picture that we have. As, as he was given life, as Lazarus was given life, he came out, but he still had those grave clothes on. And those clothes they, that stink like death to the living had to come off, Amen. They were unfitting. They were, they were not something that would, would, would be proper to clothe yourself anymore in. They had the stink of death on them. And, and that's kind of like our old life. That is our old life. It is the stink of death. And so the Lord says, let's take that off. But we can get stuck when we neglect the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to get rid of those unfitting old clothes or to put on the new ones that Christ has called us to. Simple illustration, but it kind of gives you the picture. And really, that stunts our spiritual growth. And so if you're stunted this morning in your walk from the Lord, it is because He's called you to get rid of something or to add something on. And that can be as simple as forgiving someone or as simple as spending time with the Lord, whatever it might be He put on your heart. Obey Him this morning. Put it off. And so when we go into this list of things, uh, this is not all-inclusive. These are just five that Peter's addressing to this specific church. But we don't want to live in a stunted growth period because the seed that God put within us, its very nature is to grow. That's what it does. Don't resist. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells him, verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander and every kind. And here Peter points out these five areas that are unfitting for our new lives, for their lives in Christ. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now what in the world are these? How many of you, if, if I could say, hey, could you just define these? How many did you get like two out of three? You know, and you kind of got the idea, but there's semantics between them. Well, thankfully, I'm here this morning. It's where I can explain the deep, dark mysteries of malice and deceit. And No, I'm just kidding. I seriously, when I was reading this, I go, what is the difference between malice and deceit and all these types of things? You know, you kind of get Christianized. But they really spoke to me. Listen to this. Malice. Malice, which is also translated wickedness. 
It has the, uh, the idea of just general wickedness, general uh, baseness. And it is the desire for ill will and a desire to injure and a desire to break laws without shame. Do we live in an age of malice where people have intently ill will towards others and they don't care about breaking the law without shame? How many of you have those tendencies? How many of you look at you know, some kind of code that the city put on you and you're just like, meh, ill will, regardless of what it is. But that malice, the desire to break laws without shame, he said, that's just unfitting. That it, we're not lawless people. We're not evil people. We're not baseless people anymore. No, we're not. Romans 1.29 speaks to that, Ephesians 4.31, Colossians 3.8, Titus 3.3, James 1.21, 1 Corinthians twice, it goes on and on and on. It tells us to put to rid ourselves of malice. And we'll let the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, let you figure out what that is in, in, our, in your life. Deceit is another one. Deceit is another sin that is unfitting, another action, another heart, um, a way of our lives that is unfitting for our new life and is to be cast off. Deceit, uh, deceit literally means bait or a fishing hook. That's what it means. Deceit is bait or a fishing hook. The idea is dishonesty. And let's face it, if you are going fishing, you are not fishing to go feed the fish. You are a dishonest, bad fisherman. That's exactly what you're doing. You're deceiving that fish by putting that hook on there and you're trying to be clever. You know, it's not some kind of cleverly devised food delivery system. You are deceiving that fish because you are going to eat them. The word angler, according to the regular dictionary, means a person who gets or tries to get something through scheming. Now, I'm not saying you need to cast off fishing. Actually, we're now called to be fishers of men, right? But not through deceit, through the truth. We fish with truth. We give people what their soul needs, spiritual food. But Peter's speaking about our interactions with each other and with the world around us. We once might have been deceitful people. We must, might once have de, uh, used things to lure people and hook people through our conversations, through our actions, our motives, and all these types of things. That is no longer a place for the people of God. That is not how God works. He works in truth, not through deceit. We deal in honesty and integrity. We cast off all deceit. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from the word hypocrite, which describes an actor who wore a mask and who portrays to someone from the outside something that they are not on the inside. That's the idea. You, know, you ever seen those little masks on a stick? Well, they wouldn't go and they'd do all the makeup. They would just put this, you know, whatever it was they were portraying, they put it in front of their, their face. And so they portray this character and act like it, but that's not who they really are. It's interesting that, that our society worships hypocrites of all kinds, actors, right? We love the fact that people, I'm not saying that acting is wrong, but that's the idea is that they're not truly who they are. And have you ever like seen an interview with like someone on your, you know, whatever TV thing you watch something and, and you're like, I thought you were this. And you hear these things about the actors, they'll, they'll walk down the street and they're, um, you know, people will, will call them by their, their stage name or like whatever character they are or something. I've heard of this, it's pretty funny. And just, they, they just tricked people so thoroughly through what they watch, they don't realize that they're a different person. And what, they're say, what we're saying, the real tendency for hypocrisy as we begin to see uh, by God's grace who He has called us to be is that there's a gap between who He's called us to be and who we are. Anybody realize that? There's a gap between who He's called you to be and who you really are. Right now, you might have already said, well, okay, well, I'm good on that, but I'm kind of deceitful. And all of a sudden you're going, well, I'm kind of deceitful, so let's work this out and then 
people will figure that out. Then, then, then when I catch up to who I shouldn't be, I'll let people know who I really am. Anybody else have that stuff going on? That's hypocrisy. That's not the real you, who you are. doesn't mean you keep being hypocritical. It means that we see that God has called us to a deep love for one another, for example, and we realize that it's not there. There is that tendency we have to put on that mask that makes people see a loving person when inside you are not, I am not. I truly don't have good intentions for that person or whatever it might be. This is religion at its worst. God doesn't want us to be hypocrites. Jesus had some words to say about hypocrites who wore the mask, who played the part, but it truly wasn't from the inside out. In Matthew 23, Jesus spends an entire chapter. He says, you hypocrites, like a billion times, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says specifically in the verses I want to read, Matthew 23, or verses 27 through 28, where Jesus says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. And in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. There's that word wickedness again. So Jesus calls them out and says, look, they would take these tombs and they would whitewash them so they'd be beautiful on the outside, but what's in a grave? Dead bones, things that are unclean, you couldn't touch, they would defile you as a Jew. He's saying you're like walking around tombs. The outside is, is pretty and polished. You've got the clothes and you say the act and you go to church and you do all those things, but the inside is you're wicked. You've got evil going on inside you. He says that is not, that's not right. And so Jesus says, rid yourself of that tendency. The problem was that those Pharisees were not born again. We are those who are in Christ. And so how do you rid yourself of hypocrisy? Well, you be genuine. You be genuine. This is difficult for some of you to be genuine, for me too, in some ways, to be genuine. In other words, cry out to the Lord for change. Let other brothers and sisters in on your sinful tendencies. Amen? Let someone else in on what's going on in your heart and the inner workings of your being. Of course, we confess our sin to God and our faults to one another, but I'm saying that, hey, I've got a problem with, uh, you know, with, with this, with being hypocritical. You know, I, I act like this, but I, I'm truly like this. And I know that isn't what, Matt, what glorifies God. So, so will you pray for me? Will you hold me accountable to that? Will you, will you come alongside me and, and work in these things in my life so that, that the inside would match with the call of God in my life? Does anybody else struggle with that? Amen. Have them pray in for you and watch the Lord grow that area in your life. Another word, word is envy. It's another thing we need to get rid of, grave clothes that are unfitting. Envy means pythonos in Greek, which is where we get the name of the python snake, which I assume was named after the Greek mythological you know, creature, that serpent named Python, who according to the myth was sent by Hera to pursue Leto from giving birth to twins because Hera was jealous of Zeus and Leto. So Zeus and Leto had kids, I guess. This is all Greek mythology. And they went ahead and had these kids. Well, Python was jealous, of, or Hera was jealous, and so he sent the Python after them to kill her before she could have the kids. All Greek mythology, have fun with that. But so envy comes from this thought of an attitude that resents other people's prosperity. It resents other people's prosperity. The Python went to go make sure they wouldn't have those kids. You know what I'm saying? They were, they were jealous, envious is the word, of their prosperity. Envying the rich envying the successful, the beautiful, the famous, envying our neighbor's status, a person who gets a promotion, envying uh, regarding a brother or a sister, a biological brother or sister, just a resentment over their prosperity. Any of you have these envying things going on in your hearts? It is unfitting. We are, Tuesday, we are entering into, we're going to vote, Correct? We're going to have a political election here in two days. And if you've been listening much about the political diatribe that's going on, it's seeking to play off of people's envious hearts. That is what they are working off totally. 
through class warfare and pitting one group against another because that group's prosperity should be ours and so forth, stirring up dissatisfaction, stirring up discontentment. That is what they're playing on. And if you are hooked on a side and you are grabbing after this and you're going, yeah, those people, and they, they have this and I should have that and, you know, I don't want them to have my stuff and all this kind of... It's like there's no place for that in the kingdom of God. That is, that's, that's how the world plays. We all have sinned in this way, letting the python of envy run loose in our hearts, constricting and choking love and the joy out of our lives and the lives of those around us. Peter says, get rid of it. Cut the head off the snake. And while we're at it, slander. Slander means backbiting or evil speaking. It's speaking evil behind someone's back in an attempt to defame their character. That permeates things. It happens to me. It happens to others. I've slandered people. How many of you have been guilty of these things? It is unfitting for a child of God. And when it happens, there should be a conviction of the Holy Spirit in your lives to shut your mouth. Amen? Talk about what he says to me. Not only that, but not to speak evil of someone, but to begin to pray for that person instead, to replace. Remember I told you about the car rides? To replace that with, with blessing. you got to realize that they had leaders around them that weren't godly all the time. They were under persecution. They had no control whatsoever. Nero was about to burn Rome and blame it on the Christians, and they were going to be used as lampposts. And in the midst of all of that, as they were going to be burned and thrown to the lions and all this stuff, he says, don't slander them. And you'll, you'll go on to that, talking about how do, you, how do you speak about the emperor? You pray to the emperor. You submit to the emperor. He talks about this. Peter goes into that. How do you deal with that un- injustice happening in your life? You bless in place of cursing. Paul writing, well, actually, the, the word for devil is synonymous with slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. Diabolos means uh, slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren. Slander is the character of our old father, the devil. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, which, which had many issues, he said in his letter to them, his second letter, or fourth, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that when I come to you, may not find you as, uh, that I may not find you as I want you to be. He was worried about what was going on in their hearts and their minds. What was that? And you might not find me as you want me to be. You want me to be your loving, kind, you know, fatherly Paul. I want you to be submissive, obedient, uh, you know, godly, holy, a church dedicated to the Lord. But he says what happens is, he says, I fear that maybe some discord, some jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. So he's all, that's what I'm probably going to head into when I come to see you. And I'm afraid, verse 21, that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. And so there was just ongoing things within the church that they would not put off and they allowed to manifest, and we know the nature of sin is what? It's that of, of yeast. It, it, it's infectious. It grows. It continues. It attaches. It metastasizes. It's cancer. Paul was anticipating having to further correct the church instead of enjoying that sweet fellowship. We know that when, when our kids are out of line. How many of us go, oh, great. Got to go deal with that, you know? It's like you'd rather have sweet fellowship. It's like I just know when I get home I have to deal with that or whatever it might be. You know, I've had it with me when I'm out of line. So speaking evil of people, backbiting, it's unfitting in our new lives in Christ. We're to cast those things off. Right now, don't let this go by. Think of, of those things that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your heart right now and how that happens in your life. Commit yourselves to obedience to the Lord and cast those things off by God's 
power through the Holy Spirit. Those are, those are grave clothes. That's old life. And let me ask it in the other, the other way. How many of you like it when people are malicious to you? How many people love to be deceived? How many people, you know, in, enjoy being slandered or all these other things? How many, how many of you all, you know, yes, please, more of that in my life? No, you don't. goes back to the principle, do unto others as you'd have done unto you. But get rid of those grave clothes, church. And that is what Peter says in verse 1. Rid yourselves or put aside, as some of your translations say. That word rid or to put aside means total rejection. That's what that means. Totally reject that stuff going on in your heart and your life. We're going to have a baptism next week, and which symbolizes the new life we have in Christ. And by the way, that is obedience. If you've yet to be, be baptized and you claim to be a Christian... You're in disobedience if you have not been baptized. Now, we always want it to be like, uh, you know, it's this emotional experience and I'm ready and here we go, you know, type of thing. It's like, just obey him. If you're a Christian, say, I'm yours. And here I go, Lord. So we're going to have this. It really symbolizes, it symbolizes the old life going away, the new life coming, the, the death of the old the life and the new in Christ, right? In ancient times, there would be a Christian ceremony, and they would bring their old clothes to the baptism, right? And then the church would give them a rub. Some of the denominations still hold to this right now. I remember when I was baptized when I was seven, and as a Southern Baptist, I remember they gave me a, a robe, and I'm like, what's, what's this? I didn't understand the symbology, but the idea is your old life is gone, and now you're now clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's symbolic of that rejecting of your old life and the accepting of the new. And if you notice there in verse 1, what kind of rejection of the old life is it supposed to be? You notice the word all is repeated a couple times. Get rid of all malice, all deceit, all, guess what that word means? Say it. Yeah, that's really good. Good job. <laughs> all in Greek kind of means the same in English. All. All means all kinds. Uh, 31 flavors of malice. Get rid of it. Don't leave a little bit, not some, eradicate it. How many of you like to leave a little cancer in your body? Just a little bit. We, we took out most of it, but here's some leftover for you to use at your will. No. Gone. Get rid. All of it. Notice he says, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy. And just in case we didn't know, what does he end it with? And it says, of every kind. Do you see his emphasis here? Peter, the apostle, is speaking to a church. He's saying, you have a great salvation. You've been born again. Let it well up. Push off the old stuff. All of it. It is full-on warfare. Get rid of it and put on Christ. And that's the next thing he goes to. Not only get rid of this stuff, but he's telling you, here's your new life. I love that. And that's the key to growing in Christ. That is the key to being a Christian. Put off when the Holy Spirit says those things. When he speaks to your heart, don't harden your heart. Say, yes, Lord, help. And then grab some other brother and sister around you to pray through it and let it go. Don't let a root of bitterness come up. Don't let, let the, the sin be fortified in your life. Don't let the stronghold take root. Let the Word of God blow that stuff up and the Spirit of God move that stuff out. And then Paul is anticipating, I mean, sorry, Peter's anticipating that the new life is going to well up. And so in verse 2, he says, like newborn babies, what you are to put on, he says, to crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may what? Grow up in your salvation. You can grow now that you've tasted the Lord is good. Peter's pointing to our greatest need. Any of you have had, have had babies, you know when they're newborn, they come out, they are just have an insatiable desire for their mother's milk. They want to be fed right away, and they do not be quiet until you give it to them. And then every two hours, they're what? Crying. For crying out loud, more, 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 more. And he's saying, if you've been born again, 
by the Spirit of God, you're to crave spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk. The word crave here is the verb that is a command, meaning we are to crave, that's spiritual milk, and Paul uses it seven times in his letters. So Peter uses it here, but Paul uses it seven times in his letters, each time conveying an intense, reoccurring, insatiable desire or passion, both in the positive and the negative. It is often translated as a longing, a longing, like in Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. It's not like, hey, I'll see you when I see you. It's like, I can't wait to get to you guys. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1-4, he says, For we know that if, uh, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, meaning we groan, longing. There's the word, to be what? Clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. And the older you get, the more you long in some ways. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. So he goes on and on and on and on about, about that longing to be clothed in our heavenly bodies. And so longing and craving is that deep desire. And Peter says, long for that spiritual milk, unblemished, unmixed, pure milk, which means before we pursue other things, we are to long for the word of truth and the truth of the word, which is where we find the will of God for us. We're to long for God's truth in our hearts. That's what we long for, to hear his voice, to know his will, and to follow after him. That's where you're going to have spiritual satisfaction in your lives. Jesus in John 4, after speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well, he was approached by his disciples who went down into the city and said, got some food. He came back up to him. He's sitting there. They said, hey, Rabbi, eat something. In verse 32 of John 4, says, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they thought that he went and got a hamburger. That's what they're thinking about. Verse 44, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' food, his spiritual food, was wrapped up on hearing and obeying the Father. Hearing and obeying the Father. That is what is to be to follow of Jesus Christ, to love and obey Jesus. Just as Jesus loved and obeyed the Father, so it is our food to do the same. And so Peter says, crave that pure and spiritual milk, so that it, by it you may grow up. Again, this is how we grow in Christ. We cast off the old and we crave the new. And it's amazing when you begin to do this, church, that you grow spiritually. God will begin to speak again as you obey. He'll begin to lead. He'll be begin to empower you. And what happens when you eat? You ever, you ever have, you know, your kids, they, when they go through a growth spurt, it is amazing. Like John would take out like half our kitchen. Like, like what happened to that? Like, he's eating five times as much as me because he's, he's growing. And so the word begets more word. Hopefully it doesn't just stay in your head, but it actually produces life and action because that's what Jesus says, to hear and to do. And if you want to grow, obey the Lord, assimilate his word, and you will grow up in your salvation, Peter puts it. But notice that we grow up by it, the word heard, accepted, and obeyed causes us to grow. The seed of the word takes root, and after time it produces the harvest, a harvest that glorifies God. And Peter says that if we crave that pure spiritual milk, we will grow because of it. And then lastly, verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, or if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's referencing here, um, most of whom are Jewish. He's referencing Psalm 34, verse 8, so they would have known this. Taste and see that the Lord of good is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is what King David wrote. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see the Lord is good, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. David is speaking about salvation. He's talking about deliverance. It's really interesting. We were reading um, Psalm, uh, we were reading in 1 Samuel uh, about David. And this psalm was written 
when, well, look, King David is being chased by Saul. Jonathan had shot the arrow far beyond, and they had hugged each other and said, you got to get out of town. David left. He's being chased by Saul. Saul's wanting to kill him. Saul's crazy. He's throwing a couple spears at him. All this kind of stuff has gone on. So David's just displaced. He's running around. Well, he's forced out of the area of Israel, and he's forced in to the area of the Philistines. The Philistines are the ones that he killed by the thousands and tens of thousands, right? And not to mention Goliath, their gladiator guy. And so he's all cruising into, you know, this place. And so what does he do? He's stuck between two kings that want to kill him. And so he acts crazy. He acts like he's insane. And the king finally goes, man, this is David. This is weird. And he was fooled. And he finally says, get out of here. And he drove David out. And he drove him away. And David escaped to the cave of, of Adullam. And after being chased by Saul, being driven out by Ashish, the king of the Philistine, David pens Psalm 34 in this cave. And he's surrounded by his brothers and his father's house. And it says the outcasts and those who were in distress and in debt and those bitter in soul were with him. These are all the people that were gathered together, the people that needed to be delivered, the people that needed a great salvation, that had nowhere else to go. And David says to them, in the midst of all that's going on, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And he goes on in verses 9 through 16, Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. These are the things Peter's thinking about in chapter 1. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. What did he just say in those five things? Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Not only turn, but seek Peace and do it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. What a great salvation. It was tough. David's life was hard. But he was focused on the Lord. He would fall. He would sin. But he knew who his Savior was, and he ran back to him over and over and over and over. He had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, just like us. He's, all, he's failed in all these areas and all the other ones. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer, all those things. When he sinned with Bathsheba, and he killed, murdered Uriah, and then Nathan had to come to him and say, hey, you're the guy who did this. He was broken in his heart. And he said, you penned Psalm 51. You know, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And he would go on and talk about creating me a new heart, renew a right spirit within me, restore to me the joy of my salvation, all these things. And do you know that God can create within you what you do not have? Do you know that if you are malicious, if you are deceitful, if all those things, the blood of Christ has cleansed you for all those sins, but what about the void? What about the lack of character in your life? What about all those things that we struggle with? God can create those things. He desires, and by the new birth, He will. Ask Him, seek Him, trust Him. That is, if you have indeed tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if the salvation is in you, if it has welled up, if you're born again. If not, it's an impossibility for you. And it starts with the great mercy that God offers through Jesus Christ. That all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are in the rubble of their soul, 
could from the ashes cry out to God and say, have mercy upon me. Save me a sinner. And God will look down from his high and holy throne upon that heart. And he has made provision through his son, Jesus Christ, to pour out great mercy upon you, to save you. And just like Lazarus, he calls out to your heart and says, come forth. And you get up as you respond in faith to the gospel. May God be your refuge today. May the Spirit remind you of his loving kindness in Christ. May your heart respond to his voice to put off the death rags of your former life and to put on the clothes of your salvation in Christ this week. And may you continue to take refuge in the Lord this week. Amen? Lord God, we love you. We want to love you with our whole being, Lord, with our body, our soul, our mind, our strength, our words, our actions, our time, our talent, our treasure, all those things, Lord. And we are incapable apart from the moving of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in your grace working in and through us. And so we ask now that you would empower us as we obey. And Lord, many of us are like that man with the withered hand and you walk up to him and say, stretch out your arm. And we have a decision to make. Are we going to talk about our arm or are we going to obey and stretch out our arm as you, as you give us strength to do it? So Lord, I pray for the hearts and the soul of your church this morning that they would be lifted up and encouraged that their great salvation, their great Savior is here for them. That you are very acutely aware of the inner workings of their hearts from the deepest pain to the greatest loss to everything that's going on. And that you have the ability to do what they never could. And so, Lord, would you do that in the hearts and their lives right now? Draw out from us, Lord, a purified bride, holy and obedient to you, that your name would be glorified on the earth until that day we see you face to face. All praise and honor and glory to you, Father. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs>